turn around and go like this. And I know that after, on the next downbeat, we're in. <laughs> we're, we're going back to the melody. Right. And you know, 99% of the time, I'm right. You know, because I, I just, I, you just get used to people's body language. You know. Interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> it's kind of a dance. You know. I guess. I mean, I. It's hard for me to understand what a 20-year relationship with music, what a band relationship would be like. But I guess, I guess you just know where the person's <laughs> going to go. I've been in this band longer than either of my marriages. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> Do you remember how you got together initially? Yeah. Well, I I I used to hire Kevin. Well, I brought you a couple of CDs, by the way. Like I brought you a few. Uh, this is your that, own. That go way back. That okay. Kevin played on with me. Because you were song singer songwriter, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I brought that out uh, for you, but I also brought a couple of projects that are that are total improv. One was a 20-piece orchestra that I, can, I would conduct, and uh, Kevin was in that. Sorry, and this is totally improv? improv? Improvised off signals and written cues. Right, okay. So there'd be tone centers. That these, these guys would have a sheet of commands with, you know, where it might change key or whatever, and then they might have, uh, and there's 20 of them. They all have different instructions, and one guy might say solo. The other, there might be five guys that say drop out. There might be another guy that says listen, then respond to the soloist. Like there's things like that, basic things like that. And then I had a whole set of cards that I could hold up. If I heard something happening, I could, and I thought it might be interesting to change something, I could just hold up a card and, and change the key or change, or I'd go you, you, you follow him you know I had I had a bunch of things wow. worked out plus I had uh, pre-recorded sounds and textures on ta on that tape so I would just sit out in front of the the, the orchestra and and uh, you know I could put in sound effects or I could you know cue these guys in and out of things and I would take them through their nine or ten changes that they all had on their papers and everything and, and it was cool it had you know it was called the new millennium orchestra I, I brought the CD so you can Check it out, you know. Okay, so if it's fully improv, what's the... So when you record it, because improvisation is about the moment, right? Well, <clears throat> recording it was tricky. Live, you know, I just described you what happens right. live, right? And I, I could control it to a certain extent, you know. In the recording studio, it, it was difficult because it was that many guys and I wanted to have every everything separate so that I could mix it. I wanted to have control. And you also wanted that improv feel. Yeah, right? I did. So what I did was, and this was after a little bit of thought and talking to the uh, engineer about how we could do this, <clears throat> we brought in some video cameras and we isolated people as best we could. We, I think we had like six different spaces we could isolate people in. And then they all had to see me. So we had to put a few video monitors around. Right. And we videotaped as we recorded in sync, me conducting. So if I was holding up something, the camera saw it and they saw it wherever they were, right? So I did the first 10 guys and then they all split. And then the next day, the other 10 or 11 guys came in. <laughs> And we played the tape. Wow. I didn't have to conduct this time. We just played the tape, and they would see me conducting, and they would hear in their headphones what the other guys were doing. So it wasn't like everybody, it wasn't exactly like everybody improvising together, but it was about as close as we could do and still get separation. You know? Right. That's fascinating. So it was, it was pretty interesting. How did music come into your life? How did you get into music? Oh, God, probably, uh, probably. Well, you know, when I was 10, the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, so that was a no-brainer. I thought, oh, I want to do this, you know. But and so did you automatically connect with Ringo? Uh, well, yeah, I loved Ringo. I, but I loved the Rolling Stones, and I loved, and I loved jazz, because my dad, <clears throat> my dad had one of those big electric home hi-fis, right. you know, and he was a member of the Columbia Record Club, and he didn't really know anything about music. He just wanted to have that, you know, so he could play the Pink Panther at his cocktail parties. You know, right. like he was, he was like right out of Mad Men, my dad. <laughs> what you know? did your dad do? He was the insur insurance uh, 
okay. salesman, and then he became a manager, and he kind of he moved up in the industry. And everybody, but he, he used to have these cocktail parties where, you know, everybody'd be doing the twist with a martini in one <laughs> hand and a cigarette in the other, and the women all had beehives and. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd come home, like, like, from a, you know, hanging out with my musician buddies, and I'd look around the corner and go, oh, my God, you know, and I'd sneak into my room and <laughs> put on the headphones and listen to Jimi Hendrix or whatever, you know. So, I know you're a singer-songwriter as well, but was drums the first instrument of choice? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Story there, too. Like, my, my uh, anyway, back to the music thing. Like, my, my dad would, you know, he'd order a few things, and then he'd go... Oh here you 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 order something, so I would just look at this. I would just look at the pictures of the albums and, and like Dave Brubeck, you know. Like I go, wow, that's a real weird cover. Or Miles Davis. I didn't know who these guys were. I go, okay, well let's check that out, you know. So just accidentally, really, I would uh, you know find these guys, Theolonius Monk. I just thought that was a weird name. I better check this guy. <laughs> like really, I'm ten and eleven and years old what do i know about and did you it? connect with jazz immediately i loved it i i i i i didn't really i can't say i really understood it but i loved the um just the space that it created like the feeling that, that it created it was strictly animal reaction you know can you give I mean? me an example of a song or an album that just brought you there to a different place uh, well theolonius monk did Right. Yeah, they, like I remember uh, hearing that while that ballad "Ruby, My Dear" uh, was on this collection, right. and I, I still to this day love that that song. It's fantastic, very bluesy, but mm -hmm. not, <laughs> you know, yeah, really cool. Which is my favorite thing, right? You know, really like I love that about Miles. Uh, you know, same thing. There's always there's always blues in the roots. Which, uh, I mean, to me, all good music has blues in the roots. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just does, whether it's country or jazz or folk music or whatever. Yeah. It's got to be, that's the roots of North American music. So it's, it's all there, right? It almost surprises me when I meet a musician who, who hasn't gone through the blues. Yeah. And you think, well, how'd that happen? I don't even know how you, well, I don't know how you could not acknowledge the blues. That's yeah. for sure. I mean... I mean, I haven't met too many guys like that in my life, but I have met the occasional person that goes, oh, blues, they're boring, I don't like blues. And it's like, well, then you don't like music. <laughs> you know, really, like, really. So I should introduce you. I'm talking to Gary Taylor, the drummer, <laughs> also painter and artist. I want to talk about all three of those aspects. But going back to the music, so how did drums come into your life? Okay, well, when I was a teenager, I, I was born in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 15, we moved from around the area where we were filming, right. down in the Lower East End, pretty rough neighborhood. We, we moved up to the mountain, and then my father uh, got a promotion. He got made a manager. He was like, just getting into the insurance game, right? right? And he got promoted, and we moved to Willowdale okay. for 11 months only. This is when I'm 15, right? And then we... Uh, moved to Winnipeg. So we just moved like Hamilton, Willowdale, Winnipeg, like in, within two years. So if I think of 15, that would be a tough time to move, I would think. Well, I was just getting into babes. Yeah. You know, like it was like, I was just sort of getting into chicks and, you know, yeah. figuring out how, what kind of pointed toed shoes look cool with these pants, you know, all that kind of yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and it really screwed me up as far as, you know, having, uh, you know, friends and a community that I could relate to, right? Now, I was kind of a greasy, I, w I was what you would call a greaseball when I was living in Hamilton. Really, I was. Okay. That, that's just what was happening, and those are the guys that I hung out with. Like, we would, you know, throw rocks at guys if they came onto our block, you know. It was that kind of thing. It was really bad, really. And uh, when I moved to Winnipeg, I moved to a really nice it was a big promotion for my dad. We moved to a really nice neighborhood, River Heights, where uh, uh, Neil Young went to school. Calvin, I went to the same high school as him, Calvin High. And it was so it was like kids that got brand new Ford Mustangs for their 16th birthday and stuff, you know, like all of a sudden I was hanging around with these, these kids, you know. And 
the first group of guys that I that I met were musicians. Just coincidentally, like one of the guys that I met in my class, we started talking, oh yeah, my brother's in a band, and oh yeah, really? We'd, so we'd go over and hear them rehearse, and they were playing like Paul Butterfield tunes and things like that, which I knew nothing about. Like I really knew nothing about, about uh, like, rock blues or new blues or what the my generation was doing in blues so your music was based based on the columbia house collection yeah exactly and no radio and seeing the beatles on tv right, okay. i mean and herman's hermits on tv like strictly you know the pop that you you see on the ed sullivan show and my parents jazzy record collection like they had ella fitzgerald and that kind of stuff too you know but that was it and then i met these guys and i was 16 1967. Was sorry. Was it easy to to meet people once you moved at at 15 and 16? It going wasn't to... bad with the, the, the. I was like I said. I was a kind of a. I was an odd guy. I was a greaseball. Like I had my hair greased back and I had like pointed shoes and I was like, and and the hippie thing was really big in Winnipeg right. in 1967, especially at that school. You know, there's everybody was wearing like bell bottoms and muckalucks and they're starting <laughs> to grow beards and their hair long and everything and. These are the guys that I met, and so I thought, well, geez, I better, uh, I better like do something about that. Stop putting the grease in my hair. So I, <laughs> I, I, I started to transform, right? Because it was just because it felt like the right thing to do. And uh, these guys were were hippies, like they they were all like going out for a joint on, between classes and all kinds of stuff. So I got into marijuana i discovered marijuana and then i go over to the here the uh my friend rex i'd go over to his house and they'd have the new uh, paul butterfield album on and and or the new led zeppelin like their first album and i'm I, it was like a kind of a wow this uh, like a whole getting turned on to a whole other thing that i really w- wasn't really aware of yet right. you know which you might have been turned on to had you stayed in Hamilton, oh, yeah. too, right? I mean, I, I remember cutting people's lawns so that I could buy Sergeant Peppers when I was living in Willowdale. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was already like a Beatle fan. Right. And I already had a couple of Stones albums, and they were pretty bluesy back in the early days, like doing the yeah. Chuck Berry covers and Willie Dixon covers and stuff. So but, uh, it was, it's not like I never heard it, but I, I wasn't really you know turned on to it really in a major way but then rex turned out to be a musician rex bartlett was his name he turned out to be a musician himself and so i started following his band around and helping them load their stuff in and out of the gigs at the recreation hall and you know at the school dance and you know that kind of stuff right right? so i started hanging out with them and then just kind of messing around on the drums like the drummer would let me play on his kit you know, after their sound check, and I would just, you know, and I kind of had a, I had a facility for the drums. I, 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 I seemed to catch onto it pretty quick. And at this point, are you imitating any drummers? Are you? I didn't to even be? have drums <clears throat> at okay. this point. <laughs> right. I'm just, wa- I'm a wannabe, right? I mean, I didn't even really think seriously about even being a musician. Really, I was just kind of drifting along and you know checking stuff out right going to festivals and all that kind of thing but uh i started hanging around with another guy bernie peterkin who was my my mentor he he was a piano player guitar player bass player singer very very talented guy like a school musician his father was a his father was a doctor and he collected classical music he had a wall of classical music like so we'd go in there and we'd listen to Mahler and Shostakovich and I mean whole other world and what did that do to you huh how were you how were you affected by that music oh it was incredible like Bernie would uh, my friend he he would go well you know he played blues and everything right but he'd he'd go oh you got to check this out you know like listen to what this is you know and he'd 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 just uh you know turn me on to classical music basically and uh, his father had an amazing stereo, so it sounded awesome, you know. And when his dad went out, we'd listen to Paul Butterfield or whatever we wanted to listen to. Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report. Like, like all that stuff was exploding. Like, late 60s yeah. through the mid-70s was just, it was like a renaissance, 
to me. Like, I mean, I, I think it was for a lot of people. Yeah, it was and, like and a musical I, renaissance. We were just we, talking about this recently, and I was thinking, you know, what made those, like, especially from 67 to 72, you, you look at the albums that came out, mm. and you think, I mean, every single year had just the most amazing collection of music. And you think, what happened in that time period that caused this to happen, you know? And to grow up in that time and to be exposed to all the different kinds of music at, at that quality. I think drugs had a lot to do with it. I really do. I really do. I think it was the whole, the the whole hippie thing, like with you know, let let's just you know let it all go and let's get high and you know screw the establishment, whatever. Pol- politics aside, though, right? It was a it was a a, a mind expanding headspace. I mean, people wanted to just check out new things. It was it was kind of it was hip. To be different, mm-hmm. and I don't think that had really happened before that. Right. I mean, unless you go back to the 1880s in Paris or whatever, you know, like like to the to the other Renaissance. But yeah, it was just a time where I mean, like Jimi Hendrix got signed. Come on, like you know, Third Stone from the Sun. That was on his first album. I mean, that just would not happen. Yeah. Even now, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, like like it was just a time when. I, I just think people were just, especially people in the in the music business back then, they didn't know anything about what the kids were doing. Right. They were old fat guys with cigars, you know, that had signed Frank Sinatra and guys like that. And they just thought, well, you know, all these kids seem to be going to see all these bands. Maybe we should sign some of these guys. I mean, it was just, mm-hmm. it just seemed to be like haphazard when I look back. So you you mentioned a lot of different kinds of bands from blues to progressive rock to fusion or whatever. What connected with you? All of that? All of it. And this great thing, like Bernie Peterkin, like this, you know, I can't say enough about him. He he, he killed himself when we were both 23. We were the same age. Uh, He was a... I I don't know. He was depressed and there was a lot of drugs going down and and he had these problems and... I was on the road with some band, and, and he and he and he shot himself. You know, it was kind of sad, but he because he was so talented. But he's the guy that really basically opened the doors for me. He let me into his band. Like I I would help them slug their gear around, like I said, and fool around on the drums. And I could play. I could keep a beat. I could do some basic right. things. And their drummer quit, and he really liked me and and he liked my attitude and everything he said well why don't you play drums and i said well i don't even have drums what are you talking about he goes well get some figure out a way to get some drums and like they were just playing parties and rec halls and things like that and this would be like pop music or yeah yeah well they did everything from ccr to jethro tall right some of it was beyond me but he let me you know, start out with a little Johnny Cash and a little CCR and then, you know, something in 12.8 and I'd go, well, what's 12.8? Like, and he, he'd kind of explain to me how the feel would go and I'd go home and I'd listen like crazy. I worked my ass off. Was that an easy thing to you, for you to learn? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Well, I, 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 I was dedicated. I, I really was. Like, I would just go home every chance I had, put on a, my little Seabreeze Turntable, you right. flip the, the lid open, compatible. Yes. and my headphones, and I would play along with everything. And whether it was that... Miles Davis, or whether it was Jethro Tull, or Yes, or the Beatles, whatever it was, and I would just learn how to play those feels because I knew, I knew I had to learn how to play all these feels if I was gonna if I was gonna be able to cut it. And it was really important for me to cut it. <laughs> well, I remember doing the first gig with these guys. And my, my girlfriend at the time, we're, we're like, I think I was, I was 18 when all of this happened, right? right. She was like 16. And, I, and at the end of the gig, she came up and said, you should just quit. You really suck. <laughs> and that just made me more determined to not suck. <laughs> Did you think you sucked that gig? I knew that I wasn't great. <laughs> right. Like, I knew that it wasn't great, but I, I, I didn't think I was horrible. But, and the guy, like, Bernie was cool. He said, hey first gig not bad you know like I I, I really think I, I I think with that first year that I played with these guys I think I just I just learned an amazing amount because I, I really worked on it every day I moved into the band house that they had right moved out of my parents house moved into the band house and we rehearsed every day like 
six, seven hours wow. every day down there learning songs, slugging it out and, I, and singing. Like, because in those days, especially in Winnipeg, all the bar bands sang. Everybody in the band sang. The drummers sang. I mean, it kind of was a kind of a rare thing when I moved here to Toronto because people go, oh, you sing? Oh, you can sing? Wow, a drummer that can sing? It seemed to be like a... But in Winnipeg, every drummer I knew sang. And, and Winnipeg is also, like, very musical. They and, were and very big on vocals. Right. Every band, like whether it was a four- or five-piece band, they had four or five vocalists. Like, they always had three or four-part harmony. Like, uh, that was a big thing. So it just didn't even make sense to not sing. You know, it was, like, it was, it was that. It was like that. I, all the bands I'd go and see that I thought were great around the, in the Winnipeg bar scene, and back then it was like the Guess Who was one of those bands. Mm-hmm. They played at our high school dances and at the, at the community center and stuff, you know? And uh, I don't know, they all, uh, they all had these fabulous vocals, you know? How long did it take for you to realize that this is something you wanted to pursue? Uh, well, right, I, I just fell in love with it right away, as soon as they let me. <laughs> Basically, it was like as soon as they opened the door and said, hey, Gary, come on in, be a musician, I just went, I'm in. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I really didn't have, uh, I mean, I painted. I always right. painted. I always did visual art. I always loved it. But I never really, you know, it always just seemed like something I could do. I never really, I was the guy in the school that would design the, the, the yearbook cover. You know, right. I was that guy, right? And I won the, the art award, you know, in high school and stuff. Did you ever like. think about pursuing art in well, a different I kinda way? Well, I kind of did. I kind of thought that was where I was going to go, right? Uh, until I started gigging. Right. And then once, once I started gigging, I went, you know what, this is way more fun, you know. I went to art school, actually, for one month, and I hated it. Like, my, Why do you think you hated it? Well, because the first thing they did was they, they would, we'd all be sitting there, and the, the guy put a Coke bottle up on a table and said, okay, everybody draw this Coke bottle. And I'm drawing the Coke bottle, and I'm looking around, and everything, and I'm going, this sucks. I mean, it just wasn't interesting to me. Like, we're all drawing this Coke bottle. Like, so what? What about, what about our imaginations, right. you know? Like, I was all about the imagination, even at that age, you know? I, I, I mean, I, you know, listening to Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix and John Coltrane and Conference of the Birds and Out to Lunch. And, you know, I mean, that's all about imagination, right. you know? So, so I just, it was too late for me to be, <laughs> like, contained, you know? So uh, I went for a month and I quit and my dad freaked out and he went, What's, what, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to be a drummer. And he said, goodbye. Good luck to you. <laughs> so that was my, that's how I left the house. Right. You know? <laughs> how it, did you feel? Hmm? How did you feel about that? Oh, I felt horrible about that. I was pissed off at my dad. I was pissed off at him for like, I didn't talk to him for five years wow. after that. And I mean, we, we, we got over it and we made up and, you know split a bottle of scotch one night and gave each other shit and sort of hugged and got over it at one point, you know? But uh, So he understood why you, you decided to go that route? and He went from throwing me out of the house because I wanted to be a musician to bragging about me when I won a Juno Award. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. stood to, you know, because the sisters got a Juno one year, right? And, and, and that was like... My son, you know, that's, you know, my son, he's a Juno Award winner, you know, like that, that was the, that was the introduction after that. So like, I just kind of roll my eyes and go, oh God, if he just knew how little that actually meant, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Well, I want to let him yes, have but, it. Yeah. But no, but you know, you are that and you are labeled for life with mm. being a Juno winner. So anyway, he was, he was proud. He, we had a great relationship after that, but you know, it, it was it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I was basically tossed to the curb when I told him I wanted to be a drummer. <laughs> but it wasn't bad. I moved in with the band. They had a band house. I remember it was 175 bucks a month for like a four-bedroom house in Winnipeg. It was right. just a crappy little house. But hey, we had a basement we could rehearse in. It wasn't hard to come up with the rent. You know, we, we, we worked. <clears throat> like actually... Not long after I joined that band, we went and auditioned for the local agent, mm -hmm. the Hungry Eye Agency. They were like the sort of the, 
the big agent in, in Winnipeg that booked all the bar bands and everything and put you out on the road and everything. And they, they liked us. And we started working like six nights a week, like every week. Bang, 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 bang. Like, and mainly in Winnipeg or where? This was all mainly in Winnipeg. Once in a while we'd go to Brandon or we'd go down to uh, Fargo, North Dakota occasionally. Like there was the odd little road trip, but mostly in, in Winnipeg. There was a lot of bars in Winnipeg. There was like a couple of dozen kind of happening rock bars back in those right. days, you know? And are you thinking, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Oh, yeah, I was totally into it, yeah. It was, I, and it wasn't like it was all roses either. I mean, you know, like it had its depressing side to it. I mean, you didn't make a lot of money. You didn't get a lot of respect from a lot of people. But the fans liked us. People in the audience liked us. We got girls. <laughs> you know, it was like, there was, what, the, there was fringe benefits. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know? Right. Did you ever doubt the choice you made? No, not really. No, not really. I mean, there was a little depress. There was a depressing period where, uh, like, where my friend killed himself, and yeah, how did like you I do say, all that? We were both twenty-three. You know, and uh, he was the guy who I looked up to. He was my mentor. He right. was the guy that he had so much musical knowledge, and he got me involved, and he 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 took me under his wing. Like he he was he was a very important person to me. And so when he committed suicide, I was I was like, I was in a pretty dark place for for years years because you can't make sense of that right no it was just too hard to and don't forget i mean we're doing a lot of drugs and we're drinking we're doing acid and we're we're doing all the stuff that was happening at those days right so you're 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 putting yourself into these um self-inflicted schizophrenic head spaces you know because you want to check everything out and be hip and everything and you're dealing with this your best friend shot himself like what the hell is that you know i mean it it just didn't Mm -hmm. it didn't compute right and i i I, it's it's why i eventually left winnipeg yeah i mean it just was too depressing i hung around for about a year and uh i got offered a you know a couple of road gigs and i did them and i saved up some money and i moved to to toronto and back then you, when you were in Winnipeg and you kind of got tired of the uh, circuit, you either went to Vancouver or Toronto. Right. It just seemed to be the two destinations. And had you been to Toronto at all? Oh, well, no, no, well from living Winnipeg. here, yeah, but okay. that, that, that wasn't, you know, I mean, I was 15 or 16. Right. And I was only here for 11 months. I didn't really know anything about it, really. I didn't really know anything about Toronto. I just knew that it was a big city and it was, and I knew that <clears throat> the Mandela were from Toronto and and I knew, uh, you know, I knew that it was a happening place. And I also knew some people that moved to Vancouver, and they were all driving cabs. Right. And I went, well, there's not much gigs. There, there, wasn't a, there was never as many gigs out in Vancouver as there was here. So tell know? me what it was like coming to Toronto. And- oh, it was crazy. I, I mean, I, it, just the way I came was crazy. Like, I, I, I had broken up with my girlfriend, which was terrible you know I, you know it was just really i mean really it's too gory for me even to, t- to tell you about it, it was awful awful oh, so i hear that so that and my friend killing himself and I, it was just like i gotta get out of here so i i made a couple of quick bucks working at me at a, a record store and and then i i i got up my drums and my my records and a, and a suitcase and I got on a train, and I moved to Toronto. And I had met this woman on the, uh, well, girl back then, on the road, who uh, said, hey, if you're ever in Toronto, you need a place to crash, man. You know? so, so like, I called her up and I said, hey, I need a place to crash, man. <laughs> so so I, I, I crashed with her, my, with $500, I moved here with $500 in my pocket. That that's, was gone. That's a lot more than most people would have. Well, I saved up for two months to, to save up that $500. Okay, I have to go back a little bit. Okay. The drums that you had, what kind of drums were they? Oh, the first drums that I had were, were uh, some kind of no-name Japanese drum kit that I just picked up for like a couple hundred bucks. They were, okay. like, they were like crap. 
You know, I don't even remember what they were called. And did you know they were crap while you were playing them? Well, I, yeah, I kind of knew that, you know, I, you know I'm going to have to do better than this eventually, you know. But it, but it was all I could really afford at that time, right? Okay, and then if you were to say the My Dream Drum Set would have been... Well, I got My Dream Drum Set within about a year. Because this band worked all the time, like I said. like We were working like, I think I made 75 bucks a week. Okay. Back and you're only paying for six for... nights work, <laughs> but rent was like we were sharing a house for 175 bucks. You know what I mean? So it was it was you know I I saved up and I bought a set of used Ludwig Super Classic drum sets, the the exact kit that Ringo Starr had. Because of Ringo or not? No, not really. But you know I knew you know that's what he played, and and they they you know when I saw the drums I thought well these these are good drums. Ludwig is a good you know drum make so so I ended up buying those okay so if I blindfolded you and put you behind a Ludwig and, and a Remo or whatever other kits let's say I put you behind four different kits of different makes would you know which one is what no no there's... no to be honest no like a lot of drums <clears throat> you know a lot of it, a lot of it is how how you what kind of heads you put on them how you tune them how you play them how right. you hit them like, uh, I, I remember doing a, a, a fusion session. I don't know how I ended up on it, but I ended up on this fusion session for this young guitar player. And he hired Paul DeLong and Vito Rezza and me. And we were going to play three songs each on this guy's fusion album. And it was like, you know, you know, it was like fusion, right? right. So we all uh, showed up, and, and I said, well, I'll bring my drums. We can use my drum kit, you know. And so everybody went, oh, great, I don't have to bring mine. So we all played my drums, and we all sounded completely, we made, we made those drums sound completely different, each guy, just because of the way we played and the way we hit them and everything. Right. It was unbelievable to me. It was, it was kind of an education, really, because I, I did my tracks, thank God. God, I did mine before those guys showed up. <laughs> Paul DeLong comes in, who's, you know, an incredible fusion drummer, and he does his thing. He, he, he sounds like Billy Cobham on those drums, you know? And then Vito comes in, and Vito plays really hard, and he just smacks the hell out of the drums, and they just had this crack that, you know, presence that, that wasn't there with either me or Paul. <laughs> so, like, that one drum kit sounded like three different drum sets right. to me. Well, yeah. I guess that makes sense. But I always wonder how a drummer decides that he wants a Premier or a Ludwig or... Well, certain drums, I mean, you know, have a certain inherent tone to them. Like the ones that I play now, they're Thai drums. They're Ray Ayotte, who used to make Ayotte drums. Right. He, he made Thai drums. And I, I, I actually got hired <clears throat> to be a photographer... Uh, and I, I took pictures of all the the, uh, the the early Thai drummers for all the magazine ads that went and did like downbeat and you know right. drums etc and modern musician like all, you know all the big magazines you know I, I, I was the ad photographer just because uh, Bruce Moffat who's a, a drummer used to play with Prairie Oyster and Corey Hart and people like that he's a good friend with Ray and he knew that I was a photographer, and he just said, "Hey Ray, you know, I got this guy, you know, blah blah blah. I could probably get a good deal, get him cheap." <laughs> so Ray, Ray called me up, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I'll take the pictures." And uh, and he said, "Well, listen, I can pay you, or I can give you two drum sets of your choice, complete with hardware and everything, brand new." And I went, "Oh, I'll take the two drum sets," because I mean, I knew that. The two drum sets combined would be worth like twelve grand. Yeah, and I'm never going to get paid that to take these <laughs> pictures. So I said, "Give me the drum sets." <laughs> I know we're going all over the place, but okay. Yeah. How did photography start? Hmm? How did photography for you start? Photography. Well, I, I always painted, right? Right. I always painted, and you continued to do that. Well, I still throughout. paint. I yeah. still paint. Yeah. But you never stopped throughout your whole career. No, I mean, there's big gaps. I mean, there's. I. I I'm. I, I'm just an odd person that way. Like I, I've painted like crazy. Like I, when I was living in New York, I was furiously painting, and I was trying to hustle my work around. I had some shows. So Manhattan. the goal was to sell and make a name as a painter. 
What's that? But was the goal to be a... Well, I thought, yeah, I'm going to have a crack at it. I'm in New York City. Right. I'm going to play, but I'm also going to see if I can, you know, get some art out there, right? I got a few shows, and I get, but I realized very quickly that, you know, you got to be in New York a long time to really establish yourself, like, like musically or right. painting, anything. I mean, you got to, like, really know people because there's millions of people there trying to do something. Yeah. And you're just a speck of sand on the beach down there, you know? And some of the other specks are like David Byrne and people like that, <laughs> Laurie Anderson. Right. You know, I mean, there's some pretty big specks on the beach there with you, <laughs> you know? So the photography was started because oh, of your so love anyway, of- here, uh, I'm getting to it. Like, uh, there, there's a connection here. I, I went down there and I was showing, I did some shows, and I, and I kind of got like <clears throat> really turned off by the art scene like the people that were running the art scene like the gallery owners and like there was a whole bunch of really hip galleries that if if you weren't gay and you weren't involved in the gay scene you didn't get in those galleries right and then over here if you didn't know certain rich people from uptown you didn't get into those galleries right. and if you didn't have a reputation over here, you know you know and it was so cliquey like really 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 cliquey and there was a lot of ass kissing going on and I used to see it at the openings and I just I just sort of you know and screw this and I, I got so down about it that when I when I moved back here a couple of years later I, I didn't paint for for years how would you describe your your art well my art is it's pretty hard to describe it really is yeah like, it is it's, it's, it's uh hmm I've done stuff that's kind of fantasy, surrealistic. I've done a complete abstract. I mean, I've, I haven't really... It's probably another problem of mine. <laughs> and I used to hear this when I would go around and take my portfolio into a gallery in Manhattan. I'd go, well, here, and they go, oh, love this, love this. Ooh, don't like that. Love this. Oh, could you do more of these? <laughs> and I'd go, no. I mean, I just painted what I... Uh, you know, I would just paint what I felt like painting. That's what I've done all my life. If I feel like painting, I paint. And I paint what I feel like painting. I don't really sit down and go, I'm going to paint a picture of Young and Bloor. You know, like I just don't. Right. Do you do anything naturalistic or? I, I did a, I did a, I've, I've done a few. I did one in particular that's hanging in my house right now that I gave my father. Because my father, my father was a painter oh, as okay. a hobby. Right. But he was really, really good. He was an excellent, like he could have been a, a painter. Like he, he was amazing. Yeah, I think he only painted maybe 20 paintings, but if I showed you some of these paintings, you'd go, come on, get, you know, because he, he was like photographically real. Right. Like he would take a, a little four by six photograph of uh, Paris and turn it into a huge painting. And it was, it's a black and white photograph. He'd make up the colors and you'd look at it and you'd, you'd think it was from a photograph of Paris. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was like amazing. You know? So do you think you get your... He inspired me. Like when I was a kid, I used to watch him paint. Like, okay. Like he'd come home from work and he'd be all fried and he'd go in there and he'd just kind of mess around with the paintings. And, and I'd go in and I'd watch him and, I'd, and, and I, I think that's what really got me getting into visual stuff. And I was pretty young. Like I was like eight or nine. So if, if you haven't seen Gary's paintings, you could go to imagesbygarytaylor.com and see some mm. of your paintings. Well, yeah, Images by yeah, Have you done that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how would you describe my <laughs> paintings? I mean, I could not good luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, and if you see these paintings, <laughs> you will know. But when you, when you, like, take an example, you just take one of those paintings do you have the end result pretty well in mind when you start? No. Or does it morph into that? Never. I have, don't have a clue what I'm going to do. In fact, for years and years and years and years and years, and to a certain extent, I still use this technique a bit. Like, I will just take a, a blank canvas and put it on the floor and throw a couple of colors on there, whatever my color palette's going to be. And just throw them on there, put a sheet of newspaper on it, walk on it with my running shoes, you know, take it off, maybe pour some water on it, lean it against the wall so the water makes it all drip. Then I might throw something else on it. Then I might leave it for a day or two and come back and look at it and turn it upside down and go, oh, this looks like 
a beak. So I'll just turn that smear into a bird's beak. And the cover of the New Millennium Orchestra album is one of my paintings that was done this way. And when you look at it, there's figures in it. There's a cat and there's a moon and there's a, you know, there's a fence and there's, a, but it's all done from something that was just a complete abstract Mess. And how long would you have worked on that painting to get to that point? Oh, well, sometimes a day or two, sometimes a week. Sometimes I'll mess around with something, get bored with it, and come back a year later and go, you know, maybe I should just paint over this and do something more <laughs> interesting. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, it just a... To me, playing with paint is like playing with music. Like, you sit down and, and like, when I write, I pick up the guitar and I just improvise until two particular chords sound good to me maybe i hear a melody like it, it all just comes out of you know nothing right. like uh, my shrink I, I saw a shrink for 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 years after uh, well, another incident where i got stabbed in the back by uh, one of my exes Thanks. another crazy incident but I, I saw a shrink for a while after that uh, at the recommendation of kevin bright's wife actually but uh, he used to always say, Gary, don't ever forget this. As a, mus as a musician, as an artist, you take nothing and you make something. You are as close to the idea of the meaning of creation as a, a, as a person can be. And so I used to walk out of his office going, yeah, I'm an artist, man. <laughs> I'm creation. I'm a creationist. <laughs> You but know. did you not, you would know this though, no? Well, yeah, but he used to just make me feel so good about it. Like he was my psychic cheerleader, right? you know. Uh, Bruce Robertson, wonderful man. I, I, mean, I don't even know if he's still around. He was pretty old back when I was seeing him. He's probably gone, moved on too. But he, he was, he was a, a semi-retired psychiatrist who only saw three or four people be, because they were artists and he was interested he was really interested in artists right. we think so he was kind of retired from you know the business except for he would just see a few people I, I think he saw me he saw another person who was a painter and he saw another person who was a dancer and he just you know you know liked to to talk to us and I you, would, you wouldn't go for one hour it wouldn't be one of these one hour things it would be like once every four or five weeks but he'd give you four hours right. four or five hours like i'd go in there at noon and go walk out of there at five completely whew, drained you know like and i got to like really run over my whole existence with him over a period of about five years when i was seeing him like it like i pretty well got to replay everything that happened to me in my life you know <laughs> which was fantastic I mean, I, I recommend therapy to anybody. Like, I mean, I never even thought about doing it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but Trish Bright said, you know, you, you, did, you, you, you were stabbed. It's kind of traumatic. Maybe you shouldn't. I go, ah, I'm okay with this. And, you know, no, 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 you should go talk to somebody. But I, I Was there a reason it. why she recommended that? Other, like, was, did she see something in you that you didn't see in yourself? Well, she's a, she's a psychiatrist, so she probably just thought, well, you know, there's, you know, you can think you're okay. And not be okay. Right. You know, she knows that. She's smart enough to know that. <laughs> I wasn't really, you know, I thought, here's what happened. After I got stabbed, I, 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 I wasn't like mortally wounded. Like, luckily, uh, you know, the knife hit my shoulder blade, snapped in half, and I needed some stitches. But it was still the, trauma, the trauma of having, uh, you know, that happen right? yeah, yeah. I guess you're not with her anymore not no, no that that ended the relationship <laughs> good, good plan when you try to kill me that's it <laughs> you draw the line <laughs> that is the line so anyway I, I uh, what I did was <laughs> I after this happened it was right before Christmas too I went and stayed with some friends and they were going out of town so I was in their place for, for, for through Christmas alone mm-hmm and I was starting to have nightmares. I was starting to wake up in a cold sweat with a flashy knife in front of my eyes. I was, I was starting to have, you know, night, right. knife dreams, right? And I thought, well, this is no good. So my idea was I went and I rented Psycho <laughs> because I love that movie. It's right. one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, right? 
And I thought, well, I'm just going to watch Psycho a couple of times. And, and <laughs> that's I'll, when and Trish I'll, said there's something wrong and here. And I'll get over this. <laughs> so that's what I did. You know, I get myself a bottle of wine, have a toke, watch Psycho, watch it a couple of times. And the knife dreams did stop. It did. Okay. And so I thought, I'm cured. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> and when I, t- you know, later on when I, when I started seeing uh, Ro- uh, um, Bruce, I told him about that. And he said, that was a really good thing to do. That was, that was good therapy. You faced your fears. And he said, that's probably why the dream stopped. That was, that was, a, that was smart. And I went, well, I don't, I don't know. I was just working with what I had. You know, like, <laughs> How are you, what am I going to do with these dreams? You know what I mean? But he, he thought it was a good concept. <laughs> and it did stop the nightmares, you know, it did. So did you think when it stopped that you were okay? Uh, yeah, I kind of did. But I still, went to see, uh, I still went to see him on her recommendation because I love Trish. And mm-hmm. She's a smart, really smart woman, you know. And I just thought, well, you know, it won't do me any harm. So I'll go and check it out, you know. And he was, plus he was covered by OHIP. Right. Which was bonus, right? <laughs> so I thought, well, it's not going to cost me anything. What the hell? I'll go see it. And I loved him. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I was sold on the first session. First session, a couple hours in, where we get talking about the 60s and the hippie scene and how I got into music, basically like we're doing now. And I mentioned, you know, LSD. And he said, well, you know, I'm... I was one of the first people in Canada to do LSD. And I went, what? <laughs> and he went, well, I went to study uh, psychology in Saskatoon. Right. And when they first started experimenting with that drug, they sent some samples up to the university and they asked for volunteers. I was a student at the time. They asked for volunteers to do, to do LSD and try it. And, and I saw he volunteered, right? And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, they didn't know how much to give you. So they just filled up a hypodermic with pure LSD, injected it into his arm, and he went into a coma for two weeks. That was his acid experience. He said, and he, he described it, he said, the whole universe shrunk down into a tiny white spot and then disappeared. And then he woke up like, a couple of weeks later, you know. Yeah, he was great for me. I mean, he just made me feel really... He gave me, con- uh, you know, the strength to have conviction uh, about who I was, you know. Because what I've always done in my life has been really pretty non-mainstream, you know. <laughs> Playing improvised music, having an improvised orchestra, you know, doing abstract paintings. I mean, it's always been kind of... You know, you're just doomed to be on the fringe of society, you know what I mean? Like right out of the chute. And somehow he made me feel like that that was, you know, okay. Right. You know, because I was never really quite sure how okay it really was. (laughs) I really wasn't, you know. We're going to go back. So you went, we're going to go way back to leaving Winnipeg and coming to Toronto. Mm. So, because I interrupted at that point. Oh, no. But tell me about... So you came to Toronto, you're thinking you're going to be a musician. Tell me what happened at that point when you landed in Toronto. And Okay, when I landed in Toronto, I went and crashed in this girl's... It right. wasn't even her place, it was her parents' place. <laughs> so I'm crashing in the basement of her parents' house on, a, on, a, on the floor. On with a, your drum set. On a futon with my drum set in the corner. And I, I very quickly ran out of money. So I thought, well, I got to get a job. So I went and I and I, uh, I didn't know anybody to get a musical job. So I went and, and found a job loading carpets onto semi trailers down in the what was the Schmada district down at Spadina and Queen, right? In some warehouse, you know, just that's all I did. You know, load the truck would come in, load them up, <clears throat> next one, and I. Uh, I saved up enough money to get my own place, which was basically a room in a boarding house, which was at Woodbine and Queen, in a house there. And that was like insane, because 
you know, there was there was a couple of old men who were alcoholics. There was a couple of young guys who were like drug addicts. Right. It was just absolutely ridiculously insane living there. So that was kind of, I mean, it was a strange time for me. It was a strange time. I, I really wondered what the hell am I doing with my life, you know? Like, uh, you know, it, it just seemed to be insanity at every turn, right? And at this point, you can't really go home, right? No, I, I I believed the novel. You can't go home again. <laughs> I read that novel too while I was in Winnipeg. Hey. <laughs> I believed it. <laughs> I really thought about, you know, I thought about the insanity and there's so many other hor- horrendous episodes that I, like just bad experiences I went through in Winnipeg that I just, you know, wanted to just stay away from, right. you know. So there's bad energy back there for me. You know, that could be a whole tape on itself. <laughs> Trust me. All right. <laughs> At least a drive to Quebec City with <laughs> we can maybe get through some of it. Anyway, uh, so I, I I did this worked at this factory. I got the the the, the room in the in the rooming house, and I and I was just scrimping along for like the better part of a year. And I guess about nine or ten months in, I found. I found out that you could go down to these these music stores uh, in town that had a, a bulletin board where people would just tack up a thing on need a drummer, need a guitar player, auditioning on Tuesday between noon and two or whatever, you know, and you could actually audition for people. Right. And back then, even people like Dominic Triano would do that. Like I auditioned for the Arrows and I auditioned for the Dominic Triano band and I didn't get them. Right. But I but I at least got to audition. I got to meet people at the auditions. You know, like hey, you know, I like your playing. You know, whatever. What's your name? You know. So I eventually, like I think by by about the one year mark, I got a gig, and it was in in a, a disco show band with a guy. Uh, oh God, what was his name? Eddie Stacks. Okay. Eddie so, Stacks. But for a whole year, you're not really playing. I didn't play. I didn't, I didn't touch my drums for a year. There was Did, nowhere to. Right. There was nowhere to play them. And and do you think you lost? I painted a lot. Did you? Do you think you lost your ability as a drummer at all? Well, probably maybe a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, you know, like it's it's a bit like riding a bicycle you know i mean at a certain point like if you work and work and work and you get a certain amount of skill together right you know you're not gonna like lose it all if you you know so at that point do you think you had gotten enough skill that you were good enough that you didn't like the fact that you hadn't played for a year it didn't really matter well, it, it probably did. It's probably why I didn't have a real good shot at the drummer's piano band. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like if my chops were a little more up, maybe I would have had a better chance. But, right. you know, I was competing. In, when I was going to those auditions, I was competing with, like, the best guys in town. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, Mike Slosky and Jorn Anderson, like, pretty heavy. Rick Gratton, like, pretty heavy guys, you know? Vito Retza would have been one of those guys. Right. Like they, they were like the top guys. They were they were going to those auditions too. But this thing, this thing, uh, this disco band, it was like a pretty schlocky kind of a gig. But I thought, well, at least it gets me working, you know. And I, and I worked with them for, I don't know, four or five months playing uh, lounges, you know, two dancers and, you know, doing like Lou Rawls and all that kind of stuff. And it was okay. It was a learning experience. Because I had to learn, you know, I'm from Winnipeg, and I, I really didn't play a lot of black music in Winnipeg. Right. It, it was pretty white out there. It was pretty, like, country-western, heavy rock, Neil Young. You know, it was, it was, it was not a lot of, uh, or, or a little bit of prog rock. Right. But there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, like, earth, wind, and fire. And, you know, there wasn't bands playing that. So I had to learn how to play that stuff in this band so that was a good thing you know and it got me playing again playing six nights a week too it was full time and then I went from that into another show band with some better musicians like the, the musicians were actually pretty good in that band so I you know once again I got my chops up a little more learned a little bit more I was singing some backups again and you know it sort of got me back in shape and then by the time I moved here in 76, and by 1978, 
I was in an original band. I, I had hooked up with, with some other fellow Winnipeggers that had, mute, that had moved here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all put together a, a band called Panama. We started writing our own songs. And we actually, in 1979, by 1979, we were being produced by Mike Tilka from Mac Webster. Oh. And he uh, got us into the studio to do an album for Anthem Records. And, I mean, it was kind of like a trial thing. Like, we, right. we went in, we did half an album. Mike was producing it. it was, they were our own tunes. Uh, I got Dominic Triano to come in and play on a couple of tunes. and we, we, we So really that audition really did help out. Oh, yeah. He was, he's an amazing guy. Yes. I... Amazing. I mean, he was a fantastic human being. Yeah. He... he came down like I, I i really wanted to see if i could get him and nobody was everybody was oh you'll never get dominic triano to play and I, I found out how to get a hold of him and i phoned him and i i said listen i i love your music i i saw you in mandela i saw you in bush i i i just think you're an incredible musician and he, i didn't know whether he, he even remembered me from the audition i didn't even mention that right that i auditioned for his band right but I said, would you, would, do you think you could come down? Could we hire you to come down and play on a couple of tunes? We're doing a, this thing Mike Tilka's producing. He said, oh, yeah, sure, I know Mike. I'll, I'll come down. So at the end of the session, I got out my checkbook, and I said, well, you know, how much do you want to put any? I said, don't worry about it. Good luck. Great tunes. Uh, you guys, good luck to you guys. Just did it out of the kindness mm -hmm. of his heart, which I uh, never forgot that. You know... I think everybody I've met who've met Dominic, and I had the pleasure of meeting him as well, and it, same deal. Like he, we were, he would, he, I was introduced to him and somebody said, oh, he's somebody you need to know. And I said, I met him and I interviewed him once. And, um, and then one day I said, I wouldn't mind getting my TV show onto a DVD, but I don't know how to do this. And next thing he knew, he set up a meeting for me and him to go down to meet with this DVD distributor. Mm -hmm. and you think why does he do this oh no he, he yeah, was like a fa you know I've never heard a bad thing about no, him no just an what an amazing he was a, an amazing soul he yeah. really was so what you tell me certainly makes total sense to me and yeah. what a player oh my god and anyway we, we 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 were like really considering I came here in 76 1978 I'm in an original band being produced by Tilka you know things are looking good for me you know right I'm I'm one of the lead vocalists in that band. Like, I'm co-writing the material. Like, I was I was like a lyricist. I wasn't really writing music at that point, but things were feeling pretty good. And then and then the, the guitar player in the band quit in the middle of doing this album. We had five tunes done. Things were looking good. We were going to do an, another five tunes. Finish the record. Give it to Ray. See if he liked it. If he liked it, it would get it would get proud. You know, it was you know we're right. working our way in there, right? Anthem Records, Rush. It's big. Yeah. <clears throat> and this the guitar player quit because we weren't recording any of his songs. Hmm. You know, and his songs weren't very good. And we you know, and he goes well, and he quit. And then when we went to we went and had a meeting with with Ray Daniels and said like, listen, this guy's an idiot but we, we've got another guy that we can get in here and he goes and he just looked at us and went get out of here <laughs> like he just didn't want right. like he didn't he didn't want to he just thought if you can't even keep your band together <laughs> in the studio like, and I don't blame him really. but how, how did you feel oh I felt totally you know let down and betrayed you know the band stayed together we hung together for another Two years till 1980, and then we just kind of, you know, just like we, nothing was happening, you know. So we just kind of. And by that time, I had, I was, I was playing with with my wife. Like, um, do you remember Diane Hetherington? Yes. Well, that's my first wife. I was already living with her. I was already playing on her record, and I was already going to be touring with her. So our our she basically hired our band. You know, she said, well, I, I like your band. Like, why don't you guys come and play on my record? So that's kind of what happened. And uh, that, that was, a, you know, the record business. I mean, hello. <laughs> GRT Records, right. li uh, Lighthouse label. Yeah. That's who she got signed to and did the record. Right when it's ready to put it out, they went, on, they went under. 
So her album went into receivership and like basically was just sitting there in limbo. She had to go through lawyers and she had to buy her album back, which took, I think it took another year and a half for he, her to even go through the legal process and buy the thing. And then it got, to, then she managed to get it distributed by CBS and not signed, but just distributed. They, they just kind of put it out didn't do much for it you know didn't do much as far as promotion goes and we but we ended up going to uh play in germany and holland for three months and toured around and did some tv shows and you know on that uh, you know that was that was okay but then basically by 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 the time we finished that tour it, it had a hole punched in the corner but it was in the it was in the delete bin you know because so she didn't get a hit single. Right. It was those days. You know, yeah. where you, had, you put a single out, if it didn't go, this, these guys are toast. And the, the year that her album came out on CBS, Loverboy's first album came out on CBS. Loverboy went right through the moon, so they just put all their focus into yeah, yeah. Loverboy. Everybody else hit the delete bins, you know? So when you go through an experience like that, both the, the Anthem Records and the GRT experience, like, how do you feel? Like, what's going through your head? Oh, you're, it, this business is fucked. <laughs> this business is, this is shit. But this is your business. This oh, is no, what you're like the, Well, there's an old saying, the only thing wrong with the music business is the business. Right. It's true. It's, 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 it's horrible. It's horrendous. I mean, I mean, the, the chances of making money as a recording artist are like, you know, winning Winterio. Right. But did you know that while you're going through this at that point? Well, by that point, I started to figure it out. Mm-hmm. 